When headed for Mexico, many tend to focus on the southern coastal resorts and overlook the wilder borderlands. But that's where we'll be exploring in the hour ahead. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Keith Bowden canoed the entire 1,200-mile Texas-Mexico border on the Rio Grande. He tells us what he learned as he camped out in wild country favored by smugglers and encountered a few surprises from the U.S. Border Patrol and from an unexpected visitor to his campsite. I would challenge anybody to be in a 30-foot face-off with a cougar and not stare at it. And Nikki Goth Etoy authors guidebooks to Baja California. She fills us in on desert solitude and resort playgrounds along the 800 miles of dual coastline, including where to get close to some very happy marine life. For some reason, no one really knows why, but the whales there are known to be more playful to even make themselves put on bigger shows for the boats that go out. It's wild Mexico from Baja to the Rio Grande, just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The Mexican borderlands may be mostly wild desert and dusty towns, but the river that forms the Texas border has its own stories to tell. Keith Bowden lives and teaches in Laredo, but he learned a lot more about his borderland home over the better part of a winter by canoeing all the way down the Rio Grande, from El Paso to the Gulf. He joins us in a moment to tell us what he saw along the river. Later in the hour, we'll hop over the California border to explore Baja as well. We're at 877-333-RICK, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. There are a lot of great rivers on this planet that attract travelers from all corners, and rivers that have a certain mystique and a majesty. One of the rivers that's quite misunderstood and unknown is right on our border, the Rio Grande. And today I'm joined by Keith Bowden, who's written a book called The Tecate Journals, 70 Days in the Rio Grande. Keith's a professor at Laredo Community College, which actually is right on the river, Keith writes in his book a fascinating account of his two-and-a-half-month trip, mostly by canoe, 1,200 miles from El Paso all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Keith, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Now, the adventure, Keith, that you had has several parts. First of all, it's exciting because it's along the border between a rich power and a developing power. It is a, a physical feat just to simply travel in the rough on your own for 1,200 miles. And the river itself is a fascinating thing. Now, as you spent two and a half months in the river, tell me about the river itself, the wildlife, uh, the pollution, uh, the geography of it. When you begin in El Paso there, it's, it's high desert. river is very, very narrow. It's an agricultural belt on both sides of the river. And then about 80 miles beyond El Paso, which would be southeast, it dips into a sort of no-man's land where the river is completely choked by salt cedar trees or tamarisk. And in fact, in many places, there's no channel at all. The channel just splinters out. They call it, ironically enough, uh, that it's channelized, meaning mm. rather than one clear channel, it splinters into, oh, as many as 100 micro-channels. Therefore, you can't canoe for much of that section. And so I decided that I would mountain bike along the river on the Mexican side. There's a very primitive dirt road that follows the river more or less for the next 200 miles, and that's the way I went in that section. So you started mountain biking because it was just too small to canoe well, and then you'd canoe, and then during the whitewater sections, you actually had to raft. Yes, sir. I rafted, uh, let's see, a 137-mile section, which they call the Lower Canyons, which is on the east side of Big Bend Park, and there's three or four fairly good-sized rapids in there that... I don't think most people would consider running in a canoe, right. but very passable on a raft. Now, this is an unusual river in that it doesn't get bigger as it nears the sea. No, in fact, it would be smaller. Recently, I was up in Colorado rafting on the headwaters, and it's smaller when it reaches the Gulf than it is there at the headwaters in Creed, Colorado. How can that be? Is that because there's just no tributaries? No, there are several fairly sizable tributaries. It's the population along the river... Most of the countryside is arid, and much of it's desert. There's also two agricultural belts in the Rio Grande Valley and up by El Paso, not to mention the water they draw off in New Mexico for chiles, jalapenos, and uh, ranching up in Colorado. Okay, so uh, for a number of reasons, the river just, it's used up by the time it gets to the Gulf of Mexico, basically. Yeah, it's a heavily managed river. Flows can be really high in certain sections, depending on, on irrigation needs, and it can be merely a trickle at other times as they draw off water. Uh, there's one section in my book where 
I went past a diversion canal and for about oh a day or two after that I literally was dragging the canoe. I mean it was just mm. a trickle. I mean you you described it quite colorfully and it just sounded ugly to me. It was uh, like a like a garbage dump. Uh, and then in some places you can actually eat the fish and swim. What what's the pollution situation? I think the pollution is fairly well under control in most sections. Not that people along the river have done much to improve the water quality going into the river. It's that the river is so remote and and goes for tremendous distances between populated areas that the river Hmm. cleanses itself in, in most sections. The primary pollutant is actually trash, particularly coming in from the Mexican side. I think one of the banes of Mexico was the introduction of disposable culture because Mm -hmm. people simply throw any wrappers onto the street. And then, of course, when we have a heavy rain, much of it finds its way into the river. So I would have thought there was quite a a large population along the river, but you mentioned you can go 300 miles with almost no towns or villages. The population is concentrated in El Paso. El Paso Juarez has about 2 million or slightly more. And after El Paso, until Del Rio and, uh, and Ciudad Acuna, which is a distance of almost 700 miles by river, there's only a couple of tiny villages on either hmm. side. Now, you talk about El Paso slash Ciudad Juarez and so on, and this is an interesting phenomenon. If you have a 1,200-mile-long border, you've got several major cities that are really twin cities, half Mexican and half American, right? That's correct. We call them the cuates, which is twins in Spanish. I think there's a big misperception about the border that somehow the border is simply a line in the middle of the river. But I think that most people who live along the border recognize that the border is more like a swath of land, about 30, 40 miles wide, that extends from the checkpoints, the Border Patrol checkpoints on the highways leading north on the U.S. side to the customs checkpoints, which are approximately 15 miles south of the Mexican border towns. It's really a different world. It it doesn't belong entirely to either country. And in fact, we have different laws within that zone on both sides of of the river. So that's Uh, interesting. So you're you're in Laredo, and then just over the river is Nuevo Laredo, right? And you're saying that uh, the border crossings are actually beyond each of those cities. So you guys are both Nuevo Laredo and Laredo in the United States is uh, sort of in that border zone. Yeah, well, let me give you an example. Uh, Not very long ago, there was a national uproar, or at least as it was presented to us in Laredo, about Mexican trucks. There was a pilot program under the Bush administration that they they were going to allow Mexican trucks to haul cargo in the U.S. And there was quite an uproar on the north sides of the checkpoints all over the country, saying that trucks weren't safe. The drivers couldn't read the road signs. But we've had Mexican trucks within the checkpoints as long as I can remember. Another difference would be in in terms of immigration. If I want to go to Mexico or somebody in Mexico wants to come to the U.S., it's really easy to simply cross the bridge and shop. But if if you're going to go further If you want to go into the interior, uh, a Mexican needs a costly visa, which is very difficult to get. Hmm. And we have to pay for a tourist visa and also a bond on our automobiles. What do you call these towns that are twin towns straddling the border? Cuate. Cuate. So Laredo and Nuevo Laredo is a cuate. You live there. But one city is relatively wealthy and the other city is relatively poor. Do the inhabitants share more in common with their fellow riverside dwellers you know, than they do their countrymen farther into the interior? No question. No question. Really? So you are really, you're one big community, Luevo, Laredo, and Laredo, even though your side's the rich side and the Mexican side is the poor side. I think this is the first time I'm hearing Laredo referred to in any sentence with the word rich. Well, it's all relative. I mean, you're probably yes, not rich I, compared to San Francisco, but you're probably rich no. compared to Nuevo, Laredo. Yeah, no, but we're we're definitely one community, and it's not just us. It's all the Cuates, the Eagle Pass, and Piedras huh. Negras, and Del Rio, and Acuna, and down in the valley, Brownsville and Matamoros. All right. Fascinating. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Keith Bowden, who canoed and mountain biked and rafted 1,200 miles from El Paso all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, following the uh, Mexican-United States border along the Rio Grande. His book, The Tecate Journals, 70 Days on the Rio Grande.
Jennifer's on the line in San Francisco. Jennifer, thanks for your call. Fascinating topic. I was wondering who uses uh, the water on both sides of the border and how they share it, as well as what the source of the river is. Is it uh, mountain streams from the Colorado Rockies? Is it the rain from Texas? Uh, Also, just because uh, the, the guest made this very interesting point about the community around the river, I was also wondering if the river ever changes course as it might do according to the the sources of the water, and if so, if that's ever created any border troubles between Texas and the northern Mexican states. Okay, Jennifer, um, Keith, can you? Did, that was a lot of questions. Uh, uh-huh. Who uses the water in the Rio Grande? Is it uh, irrigation on both sides or what? Both sides, and many towns and cities use it for drinking water. Laredo, for example, we we drink it, and. El Paso, I believe, they get their water out of wells, but I think most of the towns and cities use it for all the city needs. But I would guess that the majority is for irrigation. And where does the uh, river originate? In a number of places. In the U.S., it originates in Colorado in the headwaters and its snow melt. But the amount of water from that source that actually reaches El Paso is tiny, and in fact, getting tinier each year because... The reservoirs in New Mexico are, are nearly depleted because they've used a lot more than Mother Nature has provided. A lot of water used to come in from Chihuahua on the Rio Conchos, which was the major tributary. It used to provide 80% of the water. But in the last 15 years, Chihuahua has really developed agriculture along the Conchos, and they don't release nearly as much as they used to. There are other tributaries, the Pecos River, um, the Devil's River, and the Texas side. They're not large rivers, but but they're fairly steady flows. And then in Mexico, there's a number of them, the Alamo and the Salado and several others. For example, when the Conchos comes in, it changes the character of the river, but then there'll be a, a reservoir or a dam the releases won't be real high until another tributary comes in, and then it'll change once again. Is it basically tamed by dams, or does it uh, have angry There are sections? many dams. Many, okay. Many dams. All right. Jennifer, thanks for your call. Thank you. rick or by email at radio at ricksteves.com. There's more about the Mexican borderlands with Keith Bowden just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We're hopping down to explore Baja California in a little bit. But right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're taking your calls at 877-333-RICK as Keith Bowden introduces us to the borderlands of Texas and Mexico. His book, The Tecate Journals, details his canoe journey down what Mexicans call the Rio Bravo and what we know as the Rio Grande. And Dana's on the line in Thousand Oaks, California. Thanks for your call, Dana. Sure. 
I was wondering, um, while you were traveling along the river there since it's on the border, and I know there's a lot of news about a lot of violence, while you were there, did you witness any acts of violence or people um, you know, crossing the border? No, I, I never did witness an act of violence. In fact, I've been in Laredo 20 years. I've never seen an act of violence. I think much of what you hear um, going on in Mexico is, is all that's going on in Mexico in terms of violence. Uh, on the river itself, no, I, I never even felt threatened on the river. But I, I have seen hundreds of people crossing. So you saw quite people, cr- illegal immigrants, basically crossing with the coy- by the hundreds, yeah, with coyotes leading them. Yeah, and uh, smugglers. You know, I saw guys smuggling dope and that kind of thing. Huh? Do they just get away with it, or are they just clever and they know when the border patrols are not going to be looking? Well, the misconception is that the river is really highly patrolled, it, and it is in the populated areas. But as we said earlier in the interview, there are vast stretches of river that go through no man's land. And there's no way they have the resources um, hmm. or even the access. You can't get to those places in the river without an airplane. So you're paddling away. You're paddling away for two and a half months uh, with your canoe, and you never know where you're going to sleep each night, and you just look for a, a good little place to pitch your tent? Yeah, uh, as I got further along, that became harder and harder to do. Uh, Towards the end, it's more developed. I see. But it's really wide open for most of the... And would would you prefer to camp on the United States side just for safety, or does it matter to you? Oh, I think that I felt safer on the Mexican side. Why? Because the Border Patrol will, all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, just burst into camp, and it's quite unnerving, and yell at you and... They just assume that you're huh. a smuggler. If you're on the United States side. Yeah, that you're, wouldn't happen on the Mexican side, no. Why not? There are no border patrol. In Mexico, the only enforced law enforcement I really see is the Mexican army, and that's not very common. And they usually camp in one place. They, they don't patrol. So you did not enjoy encountering the United States border patrol as you were on your vacation going down the river? Actually, they, the further I got, the more helpful they were. Why? I, one of the themes of my book was I was a bit apprehensive about them because, I mean, I, I don't want to be too politically incorrect here, but we're, we're almost a police state here on the border in terms of law enforcement. So I was a bit nervous because there's a lot of stories about Border Patrol telling people you cannot canoe, this is restricted area. Uh, I know at a lot of customs complexes they won't let you walk up from the river, that kind of thing. So I thought I might meet a lot of resistance from the Border Patrol, but that wasn't the case at all. In fact, as I got further down, they became big allies of mine. They helped me quite a lot, driving me a couple of times to stores to resupply and providing a lot of camaraderie. Is there much of a tourist industry up and down the river? Not on the river itself, only in a big bend. Okay. Have you heard of anybody else doing this trip? It's not, it's not like a common trip. People don't set out to canoe the Rio Grande. Oh, not at all. Huh. As I said, in Big Bend, there's a lot of recreation on the river. So that's the big national park where people would go to enjoy the nature of it. Yeah. Below that, no. It's, it's very rare. In fact, most of the Border Patrol guys I met said they had never seen a canoe. Really? Even, you know, 25, 30 years. Wow. Dana, any more questions there? Well, I was wondering from your experience then, since you live on the border, is there... Anything that you think needs to be changed, or do you uh, like the way it's managed now along the border there and the river? Dana, that's a great question. Um, I'm not so sure I I would be speaking for a very high percentage of of the population as far as what I would like to see. Well, speak for a small part of our population. Okay, because you live there. (laughs) It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. It's beautiful. It's very much misunderstood. One of the problems is that, believe it or not, in 1,250 miles, there's only 11 places where you can cross it with a bridge. And by a place, I mean Laredo, you can cross. There's four bridges, so there's more than 11 bridges, but there's only 11 points where you could cross it. So people tend to form their perceptions of it almost entirely based on what they see from one of those 11 places, which are almost all urban. And therefore, you're not seeing the beauty and the remoteness that defines most of the river. In terms of what I would like to see, as much as I've come to like and respect the Border Patrol, I really don't think that that's 
the approach that, that's most effective. Now we have a wall down in, in the Rio Grande Valley that's quite expensive wall, and it's difficult to see why we would go for an idea like that, why we, that has been justified, because if you look at the wall, it goes maybe 200, 300, 400 yards, and then there's a wide opening, and then it picks up another 100 yards, and then there's another wide opening all the way along. So it's not like a continuous barrier that can effectively keep out anybody. I think that we have to, as Americans, take more accountability for our part in problems with U.S.-Mexican relations. I would be in much more in favor of prosecuting people who employ people illegally than I would hiring tens and thousands of Border Patrol agents. I, I just haven't seen that be an effective deterrent. In fact, crossings are way down in the last year and a half, and it's because of the housing bubble. There's just not any work, and people in Mexico know they're not going to find work, so they don't come. Right. So, Keith, you are a community college professor in, uh, in Laredo, which is right there in the middle of the Rio Grande uh, border that we're talking about. Is your opinion about that wall, would you say, unusual, or do you speak for a lot of people who live in this swath where you're talking about these sister towns straddling the border that really feel like one big community? I think popular opinion is, is anti-wall on the border. Just a rough guess, maybe 80% against, 20% for. Wow. Now, is the vision for the wall to be completed, or, or is the wall done and those gaps are part of the design? The gaps are part of the design. I think the idea is that you choke off areas so that people who are entering have to enter through these gaping holes in the wall, and therefore it makes it easier to patrol. So it must feel, from your perspective there on the river, that somebody in Washington, D.C. got pressured by somebody in a place far from the river, and they just said, let's build a wall. Not to mention lobbyists who represented the people building the wall. It's a huge business. I bet it's a big business. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel to Rick Steves. I'm talking with Keith Bowden, and he's written a book called The Tecate Journals, 70 Days on the Rio Grande. And the book is its just a journal, really. Every day you've got a, an entry, and it was a 70-day trip, 1,200 miles. Fascinating insight into our border. We have an email from Sally in Richfield, Ohio. And Sally writes, uh, did you have a contingency plan in case of an accident uh, as you were alone on the river? Did you carry a weapon? And were insects a problem? No, I, I don't carry a weapon, and I've, I've never seen a need for it. First of all, it's illegal in Mexico to have a firearm. I think it would invite more trouble than it would avert. Insects only marginally at the very end as it warmed up, and I got further and further south. There was As you got to the Gulf of Mexico? Yeah. So it's more humid there then, probably. More humid, and the terrain's much different. There's a lot of thick forest along the river, which you don't see. Right. Um, for most of the river. And if I had to camp in there, there would be a lot of a lot of mosquitoes and a lot of other animals. So, Keith, uh, what about wildlife? Were there any, anything you worried about? I worry about a lot of wildlife, but in particular I worry about mountain lions because in certain sections of the Rio Grande, east of the Big Bend Park, there's pretty sizable mountain lion populations. And at one time I was camped at what I thought was a very serene beach in a place that I was pretty familiar with. And the reason I camped there is because there was no cattle. And another thing that I worry about a lot are wild bulls. The Mexicans run cattle, and the bulls can be quite aggressive. So I camped at this particular beach because I, I knew there was no cattle in the area. And I woke up one morning, it was very cold. It was probably 25 degrees, and I was standing next to the fire, and I heard what I thought was a cow running towards me, I, just from the sound of its hooves hitting the, the ground. But it had rained a lot the summer before, so the wild grasses were really high, and I couldn't see. Plus, I was down by the river, and the sound was coming from the canyon wall side, which is a little bit higher. And then all of a sudden, out of an opening in the grass, charged this enormous mountain lion, or cougar. I mean... It had to weigh close to what I weigh, close to 200 pounds. And it didn't see me, but it was charging right for me. And then all of a sudden, it saw my campfire. I had a campfire and a fire pan right there. And I was standing just on the other side of the campfire. And we had this interminable face-off. He didn't know what to do about me, and I certainly didn't know what to do about him. 
And I had known a friend in graduate school who used to trap them and sedate them when they caused problems in Big Bend Park, National Park. And I remember him telling me, if you ever encounter one, whatever you do, do not stare at it. Well, I would challenge anybody to be in a 30-foot face-off with a cougar and not stare at it. And all sorts of fears were racing through my mind. And all of a sudden, I said, well, I got to do something. Like, th this animal isn't budging. So I decided what I would do was just shout and try and scare it away. And if it didn't scare, that I would simply jump into the river and swim to the bottom. <laughs> and so I was going to let out this terrific shout, but I was so scared that the shout ended up sounding about like this. Ah! But as soon as I made uh, that sound, it took off in the direction that it came, and, and uh, that was the end of it. So you stumbled onto the right sound to make. Yeah. <laughs> I think any sound would have done it. Ah. We've got, of course, since 9-11, the high-profile, energized border guard situation. I understand there's also vigilantes along the border, people that just don't like immigrants sneaking in. Did you ever have any encounter with vigilantes? I personally haven't. I've met people who cross, people without papers who entered illegally who had been beaten and robbed by them. By, by the vigilantes? Yes, sir. Huh. You mentioned in your, in your book that you found camps of people who were turned back from the border and they didn't have money to return to the interior of Mexico, so they were just kind of camping and living on the Mexican side of the river. Stranded, apparently, yes. Stranded. And did you feel like these were desperados and they would uh, rip you off or, or uh, endanger you in any way? No, I didn't feel that. I don't feel like that in Mexico. In fact, I would say the only time I feel the slightest bit uneasy is right there when you first cross, and as anybody who's walked across any of the international bridges or there in California over to like TJ, mm -hmm. is you have like a block or two of people who are hawking goods and right. pressuring you to go to this doctor or that doctor. Right. Beyond that, once you get past that zone, I've never really encountered any problems anywhere in Mexico, and I've spent quite a bit of time there. That is so interesting how the news uh, skews our perception of that. I remember just a few months ago there was a lot of murders in the drug trade in Tijuana, so I just I went down there actually and spent a couple of days in Tijuana just to see if it was as dangerous as everybody's making it out to be. And I felt and like what you, did you find? I felt very comfortable. I felt like I, I gained a huge respect for the people down there. It was a there was a reality. This is where the third world butts up against the first world. So you got all that you know pharmaceuticals and cheap labor and prostitution or all that kind of stuff that will gather. But as soon as I got out of the riffraff in the Market Street right by the border, I found people in the neighborhoods just like people in my neighborhoods just trying to raise their kids. And uh, I, I think I'm a good example of somebody that I just thought the Rio Grande was going to be like an old Western with a lot of desperados and a lot of danger. And you live right there, and, and you're saying that these twin towns are, are one community. And you guys understand the dynamics of that community in a way that people farther into the north and the interior in the United States uh, probably uh, should come down and take a look firsthand. Yeah. There's another element here, Rick, that you may or may not be interested in is I've always gone places where people told me not to go. I've never really been interested in the places where everybody else is going. And for example, I, I went and lived in Chile in, in the mid-80s during Pinochet because of my wife and daughter. And at that time, there was like a State Department warning against going there. And the country was in a state of siege. And everybody told me, don't go, don't go. And I found it uh, remarkably friendly place. And I think mm -hmm. one of the elements at play is that people in those places are very grateful that you've overlooked, you know, any warnings and that you're willing, to, you trust them and, right. and you're willing to mingle with them. And, yeah. and they treat you really well. Whereas if you go to some place, not that I've been there, I'm just guessing Cancun or Acapulco, where they're overrun with hundreds of thousands of tourists, you're not likely to find the same sort of warm reception. I think that's, a, from my experience, a, a fair assessment of the situation. We were just talking to a man who biked across Colombia with his wife, and uh, a lot of people say, you biked to Medellin, you know, and he had a wonderful yeah. time. You in Chile, uh, people in Cuba, people in Iran, people canoeing down the Rio Grande. <laughs> that's sort of yeah. like an odd thing to do. I'm talking with uh, Keith Bowden. His book is called The Tecate Journal, 70 Days on the Rio Grande. In the title, Keith, you've got Tecate. What was Tecate? What did that have to do with your experience? 
Well, I just like the beer. Uh, frankly, I, I, that wasn't my working title. My agent changed the title to that. When Mountaineers bought the book, the first thing I asked the editor-in-chief was, oh, good, can we now change it back to my title? And she said, no, are you kidding me? That's the reason I bought the book. It was because I loved the title. The Tecate Journals. So what was the original title? What was the working title, Keith? The River Below, since it's at the bottom of the U.S. And also most people who see it only see it from a bridge, so they see it quite far below. Ah, I'll take the Tecate Journals anytime. I thought so. I enjoyed reading about some of the gloomy nights you did this in the winter, and uh, all you had to comfort yourself was a six-pack of Tecate. On the good nights, yes. On, on the good nights. Uh, that must have been uh, just a little pleasure in, as you experienced the reality of the uh, USA-Mexican border. Yeah, it was difficult to keep that in supply. It was very hard to find little stores along the way. Yes. Well, you're on a cold uh, January night on the river, and your clothes are wet, and you can't get a fire started. A Tecate is a little bit of pleasure in the midst of quite a personal challenge. Uh, That would be an understatement. Keith, would you recommend this two-month canoe paddle to other people? Good question. Uh, I'd recommend it to myself. <laughs> I'd love to do it again. You, you probably would do great if you spoke Spanish because you're not going to find too many people along the river that are English-speaking, except Border Patrol. And, and you're <laughs> not going to find many of them until you get towards the, the later stages. Now, you're, you're paddling down the most remote part of the river. You come into, on the Mexican side, a humble little ramshackle village in sort of the middle of nowhere, in a, in a gringo, you, alone, in a canoe, docks on the, on, the, on the shore. How would you be received by the Mexicans there? Wonderfully. Those, those were the best. That, that was the highlights of my trip. Those people would be really warm, very accommodating, very curious, and always a highlight. I look forward to that more than anything. They probably thought, where did this guy come from and what's he? Yeah. What's bringing Local. him here? Local. <laughs> yeah. Keith Bowden, author of the Tecate Journal, 70 Days in the Rio Grande. Thanks so much for sharing your adventure. Oh, thanks for having me, Rick. I really appreciate it. From Laredo in Texas, next we turn to Loreto in Baja California Sur, along the Sea of Cortez. Nikki Goth Itoy writes two guidebooks to Baja for Moon Publications, and she joins us next for an overview of the Baja Peninsula as we uncover more of Mexico outside of its major tourist zones. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Hola, me llamo Carlos, soy de Madrid, España, y me gusta mucho viajar con Rick Steves. I just said, uh, hi, my name is Carlos Galvin, I'm from Madrid, Spain, and I enjoy traveling with Rick. Hola, me llamo Carlos, de España, y me gusta mucho viajar con Rick Steves. Welcome to Tijuana, con el coyote no hay aduana. When people think about Baja California or heading south into Mexico from California, they think Tijuana and they think Cabo San Lucas down in the far south. But the Baja Peninsula is a fascinating 800-mile-long road trip just peppered with a variety of fun sights, things to eat, and things to experience. I'm joined today by Nikki Goth Itoy, who writes the moon handbooks to both the Baja Peninsula and to Cabo. Nikki, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Now, Nikki, when you're thinking of the Baja Peninsula, first of all, there's the gringo kind of areas up in the north, Tijuana, and then you got what's just a fascinating opportunity to explore a rugged countryside for like 800 miles, and then we got resorts in the far south. What's the major thing that people should be aware of that you think they neglect when they consider a vacation to uh, the Baja Peninsula? I think they jump right to thinking about the activities they're going to do on the water, um, whether they want to snorkel, windsurf, kiteboard, fish, and they forget that there's this fascinating ecosystem in the desert, in the interior of the peninsula. There are Sierra peaks that reach way up into the sky. There are endangered species 
and really some fascinating ecotourism opportunities in the heart of the peninsula that road trippers can experience on their way down. And if you simply hop on an airplane and um, make your way straight to the Los Cabos area, you miss many of those things, although you could still experience them by renting a car and getting out and about. Okay, so let's work our way from north to south, and we'll focus on that uh, exciting and neglected interior and central part, and we'll finish down with uh, Los Cabos. But first, let's talk just south of the border, Tijuana. It's an interesting day trip. I just went down there on the tram from San Diego, and I just thought it was fascinating. And there's all this talk of drug wars and people getting beheaded and so on. Must have scared away a lot of tourism, but I felt safe there. How would you advise people to enjoy Tijuana, or should they just skip it altogether? I think Tijuana is an interesting venue to go as a day trip. Um, I think it's hard when you're gearing up for a trip all the way down the peninsula to stop with your car loaded up with things and, and take the time to really get to know Tijuana as a city. There are lots of things. There are fantastic restaurants there. There are cultural opportunities. Experiencing the border culture, it really has its own energy, uh, its own demographic. But it can be intimidating. It can be overwhelming if this is your first trip into Baja and your first time in Mexico. It is a busy, busy place, and it is easy if you're driving to get turned around. So I would say do what you did. Take the tram in. Go by foot. Go with a a guided group if you feel you'd like some of that kind of guidance. But otherwise, you may want to just hop right on the toll road. You could breeze straight through and uh, stop in Rosarito or stop in Ensenada. You'll still get a really strong northern Baja flavor and experience and kind of start your, your trip off with that first margarita and fish taco. Yeah, so if Tijuana makes you a little nervous, you'll get the same ambience with the best and none of the worst in Rosarito or Ensenada. Is that the idea? I think so. But I would say as far as Tijuana goes, the violence is, is sort of confined to some known areas, eastern Tijuana, for example. And so if you're just hitting kind of the major tourism sites, um, you yeah. should know that you can feel safe there. Let me say, last year I went down there during the heat of the, of the frenzied fear-mongering about the danger of Tijuana. I went down there right in the middle of that because I just was convinced it was a lot of media hype. And my take is you've got to be looking for violence down there. I'm just saying if you have a day and you're in San Diego and you want something exciting— Tijuana was so accessible. You take that tram, you're there for a couple of bucks. If you're going to drive, for sure, park your car north of the border and walk over because it may be easy to get across, but there's a long line getting out of the country that night, and you could be stuck for hours. And when you get into Tijuana, they've got these bus tours that are just cheap and fun. Anybody can hop on one. And it's just, like you said, this fascinating south-of-the-border town uh, sort of dynamic that you can learn from. And they got these goofy painted burrows that look like zebras. What's with that? Absolutely. (laughs) No, I think people, I think it is hyped very much. I think just people need to be reminded a little bit of common sense goes a long way. It's a real cultural experience to go and feel the energy of of what Tijuana is like. Um, So I would not avoid it at all. And also travelers should know that the local and federal governments are taking action to really try to ensure that visitors feel safe. They have hotlines um, set up to help make sure that people can go to places where they feel safe if they have questions. Okay, now we'll head farther south. And this is, uh, as I mentioned, an 800-mile road trip from north to south. Take me on a quick drive from the famous areas around the border down to Las Cabos. And what would the highlights be? What would you see uh, when you're really getting off the beaten path in the Baja Peninsula? I think one of your first stops is going to be Ensenada. We may come back to that in a bit if we're going to talk about cruise ship harbors. For sure, you want to make sure you're going to hit a mission or two on your way down. That may happen when you get along about San Ignacio. You're going to hit opportunities for some wine country on your way down uh, in the Ensenada area. So you may want to stop and try a local uh, Tempranillo. Remember to enjoy it on your way down. On the way back, you can only bring one bottle back to the United States with you. And these historic missions, what would you find in a mission? Why would you find that interesting? Well, the missions give you a sense. These are Jesuit missions that were really the first uh, Western influence in Baja. They came long about 1697 into Laredo. It's beautiful architecture, flavor of history. You can really understand the influence of the early Spanish explorers and how the local population, the Pericu and, and other native tribes were affected and really kind of feel like you're out there on the frontier. There are something like 22 of these along the peninsula. However, only a few actually have ruins or have been restored for you to visit. The Mission Trail, I think, is one of those things that's becoming a little bit more popular recently as people look for ways to experience the culture and the environment of Baja in a more sustainable way as opposed to just going into a resort and staying there. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Nikki Goth-Etoy, who writes the Moon Handbooks to Baja Peninsula and Cabo. Nikki, when we're traveling down south into the Baja, 
you've got to choose, well, you got the Sea of Cortez and you got the Pacific Coast. How do you sort through the options on the two coasts? How are they different? Which one's better? Well, the nice thing is if you follow the Transpeninsular Highway on your way down, which is the main, the only paved highway that goes top to bottom, you'll actually have opportunities to experience both sides. It actually crisscrosses a few times. Are they different? They're very different. The Pacific side is rugged. It is colder uh, or more moderate, cooler in hot summer months. Uh, Just a little bit of a rougher climate, I think, whereas on the Sea of Cortez side, you have that kind of hot, sticky humidity. It feels a little bit more of a Caribbean flavor. You get that kind of turquoise waters. You kind of have more of that tropical feel. If you're going to have some outdoor water fun, which one, which lends itself to that more? I'd say that depends. Scuba diving, you pretty much want to stay on the Sea of Cortez side. That's the east side. There's a a natural living hard coral reef that comes in at uh, Cabo Pulmo, farther south. If you want to do windsurfing and kiteboarding, there are a couple of places on the Sea of Cortez near um, La Paz and along the East Cape. But there's also a well-known place, uh, Bahia Magdalena, on the Pacific side. So you've got options on both sides there. If you want to go whale watching, you definitely want to do that on the Pacific side. There's three lagoons where gray whales come to give birth to their calves. Those are all kind of in the central Baja Okay, that relates to an email we just received from Phil in San Diego. And Phil writes, of the three main gray whale watching areas, I recommend San Ignacio. My wife and I took the boats out to see the grays. We actually kissed a wild gray. So do you know this place, San Ignacio? I sure do. Yes, it's called the Laguna San Ignacio. There are three lagoons that are very shallow along the Pacific coast of central Baja. They're known for opportunities to not just watch but really experience the gray whales up close. For some reason, no one really knows why, but the whales there are known to be more playful to even make themselves kind of put on bigger shows um, for the boats that go out. Yeah. Mm, Well, that's huge. You also cover islands in your guidebook, and I'm I'm wondering, as I read, if you've got limited time, why would you go to an island? Are they worth the trouble or just more of the same? The islands, in most cases, are uninhabited, and the reasons to go out there are just to see more of the natural surroundings. Many of them are protected. You can experience more of the marine life. If you're interested in birds, there are a number of opportunities to really get out there in the wild. So even though Baja itself, the peninsula, still feels like an undisturbed environment in lots of ways, there is quite a bit of coastal development going on. And if you get out to the islands, you can paddle around in a kayak get out of the boat and and snorkel with sea lions, and you can really kind of feel like you've got the whole world to yourself. And that would be organized with small tour companies that would take you from resort towns nearby? Yeah, so you could just walk up to a beach, for example, in La Paz, and you could hire a a local, uh, they call them panga drivers, a pangero, Mm -hmm. to take you out for a couple of hours and uh, negotiate a fee, and out you go. And And Nikki, you sounded enthusiastic about making a point to enjoy the solitude you find, the desert solitude in the central part of the peninsula, where you you say that the population sparsity is, what, one person per 10,000 square kilometers. That's right. It's taken me a few trips down the Baja to appreciate this. But my first few times, it was all about getting down there to the coast, to the Sea of Cortez. And actually, if you venture off the paved highway, you can really experience something such as the unique Sirio cactus, which is this whimsical, it's also called the Bujum plant that grows 40 feet tall in the sky. It's just this sort of signature plant that grows in the desert. You can see some endangered species and really just gain an appreciation for this fragile ecosystem, which is really coming under threat as development keeps marching forward. And speaking of fragile ecosystems, uh, you won't have any of that when you go to the Baja 1000 off-road car race, but it does sound exciting. Talk a little bit about that. That's right. I was one time on Highway 1 while the Baja 1000 was in progress, and here I am cruising down a paved highway, maybe 70 miles an hour, and off there in the distance are clouds of dust, and these cars were going absolutely hands down faster than our car. So it it is exciting to see it roll through. Uh, I will say, should you be unlucky enough to find yourself in La Paz uh, around those days when the Baja 1000 rolls in and you have not planned ahead for your accommodations, you may find yourself in a bind. When is that? It's November. November. A thousand-mile-long race, 400 entrants. Must be crazy. It's exciting. I'm speaking with Nikki Goth-Etoy. She's the author of the Moon Handbooks to both the Baja Peninsula and Cabo. And, Nikki, we're talking about the center of the Baja Peninsula. You could, I would imagine, you could make a case for flying down to La Paz or Cabo and then renting a car there and looping up, or you could take your car over the border and drive the whole peninsula there and back. What are the pros and cons? 
So the pros of taking your car down the peninsula are you have more flexibility in terms of where you want to go, and it will cost you, obviously, a lot less. You're just paying for gas and your Mexican auto insurance, which is very important not to overlook. When you rent a car, you can just have the car for a shorter period of time for those days that you do want to venture away from your resort. You may save some money that way. It might feel better if you are a little bit intimidated about driving on the roads, although it is very safe and very um, easy to get around. But you do have the option of flying all the way down and just uh, putting in less miles and looping north from Kabul? Absolutely, yes. So it really depends on how far you think you want to venture from Cabo. The other option I would mention is there is an international airport in Laredo, which um, gives you access to some of these central Baja attractions that we've been talking about. Now, speaking of Cabo, down in the far south end, you've got two towns, right? There's San Jose del Cabo and Cabo San Lucas, connected by an 18-mile stretch of white sandy beaches called the Corridor. Tell me the uh, character of the two different towns and a little bit about what you'd find on the Corridor. San Jose del Cabo is the county seat, uh, equivalent of a county. So it has some municipal government. It has a flavor of a real Mexican community. Um, It also has a mission site. It is a little bit less touristy, although that is changing as the years go by. Cabo San Lucas is the party town. That's the Cabo that people imagine, the spring break trips and the late night music and the, you know, picture after picture of margaritas. That's that's Cabo San Lucas, although, again, there is another dimension to that town as well. Cabo San Lucas also is the cruise ship harbor. Hmm. So folks who might arrive that way are going to uh, you get sort of thousands of people coming in and kind of exploring the town by foot. So they have slightly different profiles. And then connecting them uh, is this about 30, 40-mile stretch of coastline uh, with large resorts, many of them all-inclusive, many of them very upscale, and they are kind of right on the coast. Each has the, its own particular view of the Sea of Cortez and the Pacific Ocean. So you got this corridor, which is just nonstop line of exclusive golf courses and luxury resorts and fences and gates, but legally, they're not supposed to block the beach, right? You can get down to the beach? That's right. Beaches in Mexico are public and need to be access, uh, needs to be open to the public. So you can you can just go down there and bring your own towel and, and hang out with all the uh, fancy people at the resort? Well, absolutely in theory. Uh, you have the right to do that. <laughs> they they will uh, they find ways to discourage and intimidate you from doing so. Okay. Now, a, a lot of people go down there and they spend time getting into these timeshare condo pitches, right? I mean, pretty yes. aggressive pitchmen, all sorts of fancy gifts. It's a big business. I understand that's a billion-dollar business. What's the catch? Is it just a fun way to, to get a, a fancy gift, or, or is it dangerous? Can you get in there? And, and what, what's the downside? Are there, are there risks when you buy something not knowing if it's going to be finished? I think you really can get in over your head. I, I certainly have heard of plenty of stories of folks who, who go through the pitch, and they kind of make a habit of doing that, and they get the freebie, whatever is offered, and, and enjoy that. But These are professionals. They really know how to kind of make you feel like you've stuck it out long enough to get a good deal. And people largely are buying these properties before they have been completed. In the case of an economic slowdown such as we've had in Baja, construction will stop on those properties until they secure the funding to then build it out further. So you may buy something that you won't have for another five years or more. Or may never have it. It may just be unfinished and a, a fiasco. If it is finished, you're buying into a community where everybody's transient. So it's, uh, I mean, you're going to be coming and going with people who are coming and going. It kind of isolates you from any kind of culture except the sunshine. I think so. And I think for, for travelers, especially for, you know, first or second visit down there, it's, it's hard to spot where the uh, timeshare pitches are coming from. So it often starts at the car rental agency. Hmm. You'll have someone come to you and say, can I give you a map? Can I help you find your resort? And that is the beginning of a conversation that's going to lead to, will you come to my pitch? Um, It happens in the grocery store. Do you get more than a toaster? What do you get when you go there? Oh, you often, I mean, you might get a couple hours of jet skiing, you know, out on the bay. You might get a sunset cruise. You might get um, those types of things. But you you need to give up several hours, if not a full day, of your vacation in order to earn that. And you mentioned in your book, you make the point you're buying a vacation, not real estate. What did you mean by that? Well, I think there's a misconception that you're you're buying a a property. I mean, timeshare, the nature of it is such that you're paying in advance for a couple of weeks or whatever it is every year to go back to that place. So to think of it as real estate, I think, is a little bit of a misconception. You're paying ahead for the opportunity to come back to that spot in that particular place over and over again. All right. 
We've been talking with Nikki Goth Itoy about Baja, California, and she's written two books for the Moon Handbook series, her guidebook for Baja and the guidebook to Cabo. Nikki, normally when I go on vacation, I head over to Europe. Your job is to inspire me to go to Baja, California. Tell me one image that makes it magic for you that might make it magic for me. Sure, here it is. You're on the East Cape on a white, pristine beach, walking late in the afternoon, not quite sunset yet, sitting down to enjoy an afternoon picnic, and along comes a conservation worker who happens to be finding a turtle nest right uh, in the spot where you're sitting and is about to release a couple dozen baby sea turtles into the sea to make sure to protect them from the birds and anything else that might be after them. And you get to sit there and enjoy a couple of cervezas and help these, these little tiny creatures that fit in the palm of your hand make their way into the ocean and, and begin their lives as adults. Sign me up. Baja California. I don't think you can do that in Europe. <laughs> you cannot do that in Europe. Nikki Goth Itoy, author of The Moon Handbook to Baja Peninsula and Cabo. Thanks for sharing your passion for a beautiful corner of this world. Baja California Sur Oh, madre hermosura que el gran misionero te llenó de amor Baja California Sur Lección de gran valor contra filibusteros contra el invasor Baja California Sur En tu desierto Ucre se formó el carácter de tu población Que la belleza incomparable ministerra Cabo San Lucas, La Paz, Loreto Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We're assisted by Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Thanks to our colleagues at Texas Public Radio in San Antonio and at Capital Public Radio in Sacramento for their help today. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can continue our conversations online by posting your comments and travel stories in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 100 cities across the country. Listen to podcasts of past shows in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick's public television series, Rick Steves Europe, also airs throughout the USA. You'll find the latest on Rick's TV and radio work, as well as his guidebooks and his free-spirited European tour program at ricksteves.com.